It's really good to be with you this morning. Uh, what a beautiful service we've had uh, to this point. And um, we're in the middle of a series. We're talking about the Lord's Prayer. We're going line by line. Last week, uh, you might remember, uh, was daily bread. Uh, and uh, the question I've got for you is, how's it going? Uh, how are those daily bread uh, prayers going? Uh, are we creating the habits that we want to have in our life? Uh, if so, congratulations. If not, it's not too late. There's time. And I assure you, if we can get these into our lives, it will change the course of your life. And that is not an exaggeration. Uh, before we begin here, however, let us begin with prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come this morning... And God, we already feel your presence in this place. Your Holy Spirit is alive and well in here and in our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you continue to speak, that you continue to open us up. And God, this morning, as we think about our own confessions and our own need for forgiveness, as well as the ways in which we need to forgive others, Lord, speak with a loud and clear voice this morning. Convict us of the sin that we have, and convict us of the ways in which we have withheld forgiveness from others. And God, may we leave this place lighter than we came in. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, there is power in radical forgiveness. It's a power that I think is unique among all other powers uh, that could be. Uh, I don't think it's a power uh, that can be replicated. It's a power that can transform societies and even the world. And I believe that the power of radical forgiveness is sitting at the very center of Christianity, of what you and I uh, confess we believe. Christ on the cross, radically forgiving the sins of the world, is a unique power that in a literal way transformed and transforms and will transform our world. Uh, radical forgiveness is not the way of the world, however. I think we all know this quite well, especially the current climate we're in. I mean, it's always been the case, but it sure seems like our current climate, the, the, the tribalism, the grievances, the polarization, we are a culture that is easily offended. In fact, we've, I would say, trained ourselves to take offense at the smallest infractions. This is a problem, especially for those of us who live into a sense of radical forgiveness that Christ has given to us. I watched a comedy special a number of months ago by Trevor Noah uh, with my in-laws, which is always fun. Uh, and uh, now my father-in-law likes to bring up one of the jokes in particular, uh, as especially we drive down the highways uh, of the Washington, D.C. area. Um, Trevor Noah introduced uh, a German word uh, to his audience called schadenfreude. I might have used this word before. Do you know what schadenfreude is? You know this word, anybody? Yeah, yeah, somebody does. Uh, it means like taking joy in someone else's misfortune or pain, right? And then the joke he, he tells is, uh, is when driving down the HOV lane at top speed 
and you look to your right, and there's gridlock, and you're thinking to yourself, I made wise choices in life as these poor suckers over here are stuck in traffic, right? It's that feeling of schadenfreude. I would say, though, it's not a joke because many of us feel this emotion or whatever you might want to call it um, in, in taking pleasure when others fail at other parts in our life when, frankly, we probably shouldn't. I think our world today in particular, again, the climate we're in is full of, of schadenfreude and um, it stands in stark contrast, however, to what Christ calls us to in a very serious kind of way now, not in a in a joking way. Um, Pete Gregg, the, the author of the book that we're all reading together, uh, tells a powerful story at the end of uh, his chapter on confession and reconciliation. And uh, the story's about forgiveness, and it's about um, Northern Ireland. Uh, and it takes place in, uh, well, November 8, 1987. November 8, 1987, a 40-pound bomb is planted by the Provisional Irish Republican Army, and it explodes in a small northern Irish town of Enniskillen, killing 11 innocent people and injuring 64 more. And one of the people killed, he says, is a woman named Marie Wilson. Her father, Gordon Wilson, was also in the blast, but he survived. And he reports that his daughter's final words were, Daddy, I love you very much. The remarkable thing about the story is, is that he is interviewed. Gordon is interviewed just hours later. I mean, the immediacy of the blast. And when he uh, asked about it, he says, and I quote, I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her life back. I will pray for these men tonight and every night. This is this man's response. I, I, do, I don't know that I would be able to say those words. And then, according to Greg, in the way he tells the story, this single interview uh, and Gordon Wilson's radical forgiveness in this moment actually changed the course of history in Northern Ireland, leading to peace and reconciliation that was not available prior. Now, one does not wake up one day and say, I'm just going to be like Gordon Wilson, and I'm going to live into that lifestyle. You, you just don't do that. The posture of heart that Gordon Wilson had is formed over a lifetime of prayer. It is what we need to talk about today, forming this kind of posture in our own lives. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And in this phrase, there is a one-two punch sitting there for all of us. The first punch is when we pray, forgive us, because, well, it's a confession, isn't it? It's a statement saying, I've done something wrong, and I need to be forgiven. And this can be very hard, especially if you're doing it right, especially if you're gripped by your own sin and you're broken by it. 
But the second punch comes right after that. And this is where we are expected to forgive others. Forgive us as we forgive others, right? And so the forgiveness of others is, is tied intimately to God's forgiveness of us. But just as confession is vital to our spiritual health, well, so is forgiving others vital to our spiritual health. There's three parts to the sermon. If you want to uh, create a little outline, I didn't make a PowerPoint today. I don't want you to get used to it, but occasionally I, I like to play with images and stuff. But this morning we don't have one, but you can put it in your head, and it's very simple. We want to talk about confession, and we want to talk about forgiving others, and then I want to conclude with two specific practices that will help you do this. Confession. Sinclair Ferguson writes the following. Repentance or confession is a characteristic of the whole life, not the action of a single moment. Repentance or confession is a characteristic of a whole life, not the action of a single moment. Certainly confession can be a single moment. It has to be, right? But it also needs to be a posture. It needs to be something that we come back to on a daily basis. Our reading this morning from the Old Testament um, is from Psalm 51. And I will say, and I, I told the Sunday school group this morning, I came in this morning not realizing that the Sunday school class was going to read through Psalm 51, and we did, and we went through line by line. And now today, for the sermon, uh, we're talking about forgiveness, and we're reading through Psalm 51, and as I said to them, and I'll say it to, to everybody in here, somebody needs forgiveness this morning. <laughs> Frankly, we all do. And so I would ask that you open your hearts to where God is moving in you today. I'm going to read Psalm 51, starting in verses 7, uh, well, through 12 again. David is, is crying out to God. He is a broken man at this point. He has been broken by his sin, uh, the sin with Bathsheba. And uh, Nathan has come to him and, and, and just torn open this wound. Uh, and he is, he's laying there bleeding and realizing uh, the, not just the error of his ways, but just how much damage he has done to himself and to the people around him, possibly to his nation, but most importantly here, to God. And so he says this, Purge me, God. With hyssop I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The psalm is indeed a prayer after his sin with Bathsheba. But I think David can pray it because as we talked about this morning, he is a man after God's own heart, which means he has a posture in life that is constantly seeking God's presence. And he knows in this case, what he has done has put a gap 
between him and God. And he needs God's mercy. He needs to repent. And he needs to be restored. He tells God, wash me. He says, hide your face from my sin, God. Blot out my iniquity. Clean my heart. Renew my spirit. Make me new again. This is an undeniably beautiful prayer. The whole thing is, in fact, all of Psalm 51. But don't be deceived. It's not intended to be prayed just every now and again when you commit some terrible sin. Those moments often break us and they expose us for the fallen people that we are. But the fall happens in much more subtle ways that require a daily confession, a daily introspection, a daily request for a clean heart and a right spirit. Uh, If you haven't noticed, I will point it out again, Clint began the service and we begin almost every service with a time of silence in which we are invited into confession. This is a pretty routine part of just about any church service or most church, many church services across the United States, not all. Uh, And the idea actually there is that we must begin with the right heart attitude. We must begin with a sense of who we are in God's presence. And we must remember that as we come to God with our confession, that the answer is always yes, I forgive you. Yes, I forgive you. And as Frederick Buechner says, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything God doesn't already know, period. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. And when you confess them, it becomes the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, Many of you know Chuck Colson, right? Uh, You might know him uh, and his ministries. He's a tremendous witness to the kingdom of God. Um, However, he didn't start there. I think Many of us, but maybe not most of us, know this. I don't know who knows this about him. You know, he, he worked in the Nixon administration as his hatchet man. Do you know this? Do you know, do we all know Chuck Olson? Like half the room, maybe. Especially, uh, so do we know who Richard Nixon is? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, not, yeah. So Nixon was the president. Whitewater, he, big failure. Well, Chuck Colson, who is this, uh, legendary uh, figure was Nixon's hatchet man during all of this. And uh, he's doing every, and he, he ends up uh, in a place where he's, he's fighting his own pride. He is, he's, he's trying every way possible to get out of owning his own mistakes. Uh, he has this desire that so many of us, most of us, maybe all of us have to, to look good and, and to prove that we're actually right when we're not and especially when we're in the public eye. And, um, and then he has this moment where he is just completely shattered. And it's like a David in Psalm, 20, Psalm 51 moment where David is just broken because of his sin. And Chuck Holson writes, and he has uh, this moment in his own life, and he writes this. With my face cupped in my hands, head leaning against the steering wheel, I forgot about machismo, about pretenses, about fears of being weak, P. 
period. And as I did, I began to experience a wonderful feeling of being released. And then came the strange sensation that water was not only running down my cheeks, that surging through my whole body as well, cleansing and cooling as it went. They weren't tears of sadness and remorse, nor of joy, but somehow tears of relief. And then I prayed my first real prayer. I don't know if you've had that experience in your life. I have. Where I've been so gripped by my own sin and something about it. And I don't know, you can't put a finger on like when it happens or why it happens. But something in you breaks. And you realize for the first time, I need a savior. I need somebody outside of me to come in and to rescue me from the trouble that I've got myself into. I see David in this moment. I see Chuck Colson in this moment. If you haven't been there, well, you have, and you probably didn't realize it. And my hope is, is that you find a way to let your heart break enough that God can come in and redeem you. David, uh, in Psalm 51, not in the part we read today, um, but later on in, in verses 16 and 17, says it this way. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give that. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are, and he names it ever so clearly, a broken spirit. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise, is what he says. What God is after is somebody who's willing to humble themselves and to recognize the ways in which they've failed. They have failed, yes, themselves, yes, their friends, yes, their family, perhaps in the case of David, even a nation, but more important yet, the ways in which they've failed God, and they are coming, asking, forgive me, forgive me. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that every time the answer is yes, I forgive you. That is why I died on the cross. So that's part one, forgiveness, confession. The part two of the Lord's Prayer is as we forgive one another's trespasses. I said it's a one-two punch. So if the first punch has already got you reeling, this second one's a doozy. I'm going to start with a quick one-question quiz. And I have half a mind to ask you to raise your hands um, if it's true or false. True or false. If you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Is that true or false? If you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Yeah, it's one of these that you don't want to be true, right? Uh, it feels wrong in a way because, well, God just should forgive. Um, however, <laughs> if you were paying attention to the, uh, the reading uh, from Matthew 6, so 
he, he says the Lord's Prayer, and he ends uh, where we always, well, actually, he ends with, you know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that's the real ending. And then he moves into this piece about forgiveness. And I'm just going to go ahead and quote it again for you. Uh, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if, and here's the key line, uh, you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That is um, uncomfortable, to say the least, is it not? Let's just agree, this is deeply uncomfortable. If I do, it, I'll just read it again. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We should probably think about this one more often than we do, shouldn't we? This one feels important. A bit of a deeper dive into this connection uh, is um, the, the connection between God forgiving us uh, and us forgiving others uh, is directly connected to a parable that Jesus tells later on in the book of Matthew. In fact, go ahead and open there with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Uh, it starts in verse 21. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. I'm going to read it and, uh, and give some commentary on it. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? How generous, Peter. Uh, seven times, right? And Jesus says what? Jesus said to him, I do not say to, uh, to you seven times, but 77 times. Um, most uh, would agree that what Jesus is saying here is, is really an infinite number of times. Like, you should keep forgiving is, is the point. It's, it's not to actually put a cap on how many times you forgive. But then he tells this parable, and it goes like this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This story is going to hinge on you understanding a couple small details about the ancient world. Okay, And one is the value of a talent, and the other is a value of a denarius. I promise this will be interesting. <laughs> I know. A talent, just so, talent is 20 years of labor. That's how much it's worth, okay? 20 years of labor, one talent. This man owes how many? 10,000 talents, okay? That's 10,000 times 20 is 200,000. Quick math in my head here. Uh, actually, I did the math at home. Uh, <laughs> 200,000 years of service. This is what we're talking about here. This is what this man owes, okay? Now, if we want to put it into a dollar sign that connects with today, let's say a year's worth of labor is $20,000, okay? We're just, for the sake of... $20,000 times 200,000 years, right? 20,000 a year times 200,000 years 
any quick, you know how much this is? Yeah, I know, I had to put it on a computer, and then I had to count all the zeros and go, four, wait for it, billion dollars. Four billion dollars is what we're talking about in this parable. That's how much this man owes the king, right? We understand the, the gravity of this, the weight. I told you it'd be interesting. Stick. All right. <clears throat> when he began to settle, this is verse 24 again, uh, one of the servants was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, imagine that, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So his servant fell on his knees, imploring him, the master, the king, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Really? Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And then this is what the king responds with. Out of pity, his compassion on him. He knows he's in a situation in which he can't really repay this, right? There's no way. Four billion dollars. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. He just wipes it clean. He says, you're forgiven. It's over. Right? But, the story goes on. When the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Getting straight to the point, it's about $6,000 today, right? Which is not a lot of money. If someone owes me $6,000, I'm probably going to come after them and ask for my $6,000. But he's just been forgiven $4 billion, right? So his fellow servant fell down. Oh, sorry, uh, backing up. Uh, 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. That should sound familiar, because it's quite literally the exact line that this man had said. Have patience. I'll pay it. I'm good for it. And he refused, right? He did not have pity. He did not have compassion on this fellow servant. And he went and he put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because, because you pleaded with me, <clears throat> excuse me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. I mean, the, the parallel, like, if you're not getting it, right, God is, is saying, right, I have had mercy on you. I want you to behave like I behave. I want you to act in this world like I act. And when I have mercy on you for giving you four billion dollars of your debt, when someone comes to you and is pleading, is asking for your mercy, and yeah, they owe you six thousand dollars, well, you better give it to them. 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so he doubles down once again on exactly what he said right after the Lord's Prayer, which he's connecting these two things, God's forgiveness of us and our willingness to forgive other people. I think the question at the heart of it all is, are we being shaped into the image of God such that we have the kind of forgiveness and mercy that we see God offering to us, and are we willing to then grant it to those people who need it from us? The lesson, I think, is clear enough. What God has forgiven us is infinitely more than whatever someone else may have done. The debts are incomparable. But what's more, God is calling us to be like him, to forgive like he forgives, to have pity and compassion like he has compassion. And it's not just Jesus who connects these two things. God's forgiving us and our forgiving of other people. We see it in a number of places. I'm just going to quickly read a couple from Paul. Ephesians 4.32, if you want to write that down. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And there's Paul connecting these two things. You should forgive one another just like Christ forgave you. Or Colossians 3.12 and 13. Put on, as God's chosen one, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Again, connecting these two things, right? So how do we do it? How do we become like the person who's willing to forgive Well, I've got a couple practices, really one and, and then kind of another one, but one, one in particular. Uh, this also appears in the book that we're all reading together. Uh, this is uh, an Ignatian uh, practice called the Prayer of Examine. I believe I have actually mentioned this before. Um, I, had, I did have a slide for this one, but I decided not to use it. It was a, a puppy dog uh, upside down asleep on its back. Uh, and, uh, and the reason is because often this is my prayer as I'm laying in bed. <laughs> I thought the sleeping puppy would have been cute. Um, and it's what I pray uh, or try to uh, as I'm, I'm, I'm bringing myself uh, to sleep each night. And the prayer of examine, uh, as Greg tells it, has uh, four parts to it. The four parts are to replay, rejoice, uh, repent, uh, and reboot. Replay, rejoice, repent, and reboot. Each of these. Uh, replay. As I lay there in bed, I remind myself of the day's events. And I, uh, as uh, one Jesuit father says, I, I rummage through my life for God. Uh, going through a drawer full of stuff feeling around, looking for something that you're sure must be there. Surely God is somewhere in this day, and I'm, I'm rummaging through my day's events, looking for where God was present. And then I rejoice, and I remind myself of the good and the beautiful from the day. 
the word of a friend who inspired me, or the look of a woman uh, who helped me, or the unexpected hug from one of my kids, or the old mug that I keep using and it just keeps making me happy, or whatever it might be for you, right? But I also, and this is what Greg said, you, you don't want to shy, in, in the rejoicing, you don't want to shy away from uh, the painful events of the day because they're there too, right? And the question in there is not so much why. I found this tremendously helpful. I spent a lot of time in my life asking God why. And I have found that often the question why is too big of a question, more for me than God, uh, why? And so he suggests, I quite like it, and I recommend it to you, we ask for the question, where? Where were you, God, in that news I got from the doctor, right? Because often, there is an answer to that one. And God may have shown up in the attendant behind the counter who was present with you and smiled at you and was caring for you, and God did show up in that way, right? The question, why? Why is thing happening to me? That's probably too big. But where God can be, well, that is a sized question that can be answered. And often God can impress upon you moments where God did show up in your life on a daily basis if we just had the eyes to see it. The third is the one we're talking about today, which is repent, right? So replay, rejoice, and repent. This is the third part of the examine. And here we're going through the day's events, we're rummaging through that drawer, and we're looking for the places in which we perhaps didn't live up to the best version of ourselves. And the idea here is not to extract a pound of flesh that God needs from us, It is to bring our flawed self to the altar. It is to find once again our failing met with God's hand of healing and forgiveness. We are often so good at finding that speck in the other's eye, but a daily practice of examining our day will lead us to a place where we begin to see the plank in our own eye. And only then can we do something about it starts with humility and self-examination. And this practice has the means of bringing your undesirable thoughts and behavior into clearer perspective. I don't know about you, but I think I do, actually. In the moment of sin, we have a, a tendency as humans to justify, to make excuses for why something's happening. Sure, I'll drink that extra alcoholic beverage. I deserve a break. No, I won't help Stuart. He hurt my feelings. He deserves whatever happens to him. Of course I yelled at the cashier. Did you see how stupid she was? I'm just gonna keep sitting on the couch watching one more YouTube video because I don't feel like doing the job I'm really supposed to be doing. There's self-justification and all that. There's excuse-making. But at the end of a long day, as you're rummaging through the drawer of your day's life, 
something comes forward, right? The, in the light of the daily examine, we realize exactly what we've done and we realize we need a clean slate. And we can pray with David, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. But without a regular cleaning and time of confession, you will find that you begin to tolerate an increasing amount of dirt and sin in your life. And as Greg writes, behaviors that once would have been shameful or even shocking will become tolerated, accommodated, and eventually normalized as your conscience is numbed. The daily repentance has another important effect, however. It keeps you honest about yourself so that when someone else needs your forgiveness, needs your mercy, you are much more tender to how often and regularly God has forgiven you. The fourth part and final part is the reboot, right? The reboot. After replaying the day, rejoicing in God's activity, and repenting, we turn ourselves to the day to come, and we give it over to God, and we ask that God give us the strength for one more day, that daily bread, right, that we might be an instrument of his redemption in the world. All right, so that's the examine. I promise I just, this one's actually really quick, the other practice. The other practice is a prayer practice as well. Uh, and so if the, if the first one of these, the examine, has more to do with our ability to uh, ask for forgiveness, to, to confess, and to get right with God on a daily kind of basis, the second practice, it has to do with our willingness to forgive others. Perhaps the best advice I can give you is uh, from what Jesus both says and the way he then models it. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, Real question here, when is the last time you prayed for the person who has hurt you? Have, Have you done this? Some of you probably have. Hopefully you have, actually. If you've done this, at least if you've done it enough, you often find in this kind of praying that that animosity you're holding within toward that person who has hurt you, it begins to dissolve. The bitterness that you feel, it can be melted away. And as you pray for that person, that person who has hurt you or is the thorn in your side or is just a nuisance in your life, you begin to realize, oh, oh, they're a human being too. And it turns out I probably have more in common with them than I realize. And if you really begin to pray for them, you probably realize they too have been hurt by someone or something in their life. And often they might be acting out of some sort of insecurity or something else. And so as we pray for them, we become open to the possibility of actually forgiving them when that time comes. 
But Jesus doesn't just say to do it. He doesn't just like put the words out there, pray for those who persecute you. He actually does it. In what has to be, for my money, one of the most powerful scenes in all of Scripture is Jesus hanging on a cross in extreme agony and pain. And as he's looking out over the people who have put him up there, what does he say? He cries out to his father. He says, Father, forgive them. In the very moment, it's all happening. Father, forgive them. Not because they've asked for the forgiveness, right? Not because they've realized what they did was wrong and they're repenting. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. I know that is something that I need. And I'm pretty sure it's something y'all need. Because there are times where I have hurt people and I didn't even know it. I didn't know what I was doing. Now, when it comes to light that I realize it is incumbent upon me to go to that person to make things right. But I need forgiveness for the things that I know that I've done and I need forgiveness for the things that I don't even know what I've done. I need it all. Which is why a daily practice of coming before God and offering myself and repentance to him is important And by coming to God in offering prayers for those people who have hurt me is also important. In a moment, uh, we're going to do what we always do, which is we're going to end the service with a song. And my prayer for you this morning is that you let God do some work in your heart this morning. Uh, The altar, these steps and in front of the table here, is going to be open And if you need to come forward and you need to release something to God, like Chuck Colson released himself to God, I offer that to you. This can be a powerful time in your life, a life uh, or a time where uh, you see a turning point, where you decide, you know what, all of that life before, I'm done with that. I I don't want to be that person. I don't want to live that life. And God, I'm handing it all over to you today. And I'm marching in a different direction. I'm marching toward you. I'm marching toward the kingdom. I want to ask that you prepare your hearts in that way. Let's go to God in prayer right now. Heavenly Father, you are a good Father who loves your children dearly. And God, you want nothing more than a right relationship with each and every one of us. You look upon us with joy and love and compassion. But God, you are also hurt by the ways in which we avoid you, by the ways in which we hurt you, by the ways in which our sin has put a a chasm between us. God, this morning is an opportunity to make things right. Speak directly to the hearts of your congregation here. Give them the courage to do what they need to do to make things right. 
to make things right with you and the people who they've hurt. God, may we be people who offer true confession to you and true forgiveness to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.